Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat that you have given us for this opportunity to gather together as Mishpacha, as family, to worship before you, to experience your might and your power and your presence. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word today, you will speak boldly and entirely into our hearts today, that it be your voice heard, your words received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose and for your glory. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. So today we are in Parsha Kitzisah, and uh, if you've had a chance to read through the Parsha, you'll notice that there is a ton happening in Parsha Kitzisah. Um, and so we're going to spend the next four and a half hours talking about one half of it. And uh, no, um, there, there's a ton happening in Parsha Kitzisah. Parsha, uh, this Parsha is really interesting because there's so much going on that I think as believers in the 21st century is so valuable uh, for us to, to grasp and to learn from and to understand. And in particular, we know that at this point, Moses is still on Mount Sinai. He's been on Mount Sinai. Uh, he's on Mount Sinai for 40 days receiving the word from the Lord. We know that the Lord is, uh, and we read in this part about the Lord cutting the covenant on the stone and that being given to Moses and what have you. And, and we find ourselves in a really interesting predicament as the nation of Israel, as the people of God. And verse, uh, chapter 32, beginning with verse 1, says, now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, get up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. We recognize as Israel comes across the um, Suf, the Sea of Reeds, they come through on dry ground where once water stood. They stand on the other side of the, the, the seashore and the first thing out their mouth is, we're hungry. We got no food. What are we going to do? Did you bring us out here to die? Why are you doing the same thing reappears over and over and over and over again in Israel's journey to the promised land. And in this particular Parsha, we see a similar scenario. Moses is on Mount Sinai. Now, remember Moses is on Mount Sinai because the nation of Israel refused to hear the voice of the Lord any further. Not because God didn't want to speak to them. Not because God didn't want to speak to us. But because we as a people group decided we could not hear his voice any longer. We were afraid we would die. And so we told Moses, Moses, you go and get his word. You bring it back to us. And everything he says, we will do and obey. Moses goes up and does exactly what Israel beckons of, them, of him to go up and to receive the word. And he's on Mount Sinai for just a wee bit too long for their comfort. He's up there for 40 days. Now keep in mind, he's up there without food. They got food down on the ground. The Lord's still providing manna every morning, and they've got the, the, the meats that they, they've got to, to eat. They've got everything they could ever need. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days with no food. In the midst of this fiery furnace of a cloud upon the mountain, and all they can do is worry about themselves. And so they cry out uh, to Aaron, go uh, get up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Verse 2, so Aaron said to them, and this is important, keep in mind who Aaron is. 
Aaron is the high priest. We just finished reading about the, uh, the, the procedures for the garments and the anointing, the consecration of the priesthood. And in just a few chapters, as we get into Leviticus, we're going to actually read about the actual consecration of Aaron as the Kohen Gadol, as the high priest of Israel. And here is this man that God has selected and set aside as the high priest of Israel, as the mediator between the people of God and the God of all creation himself. And they cry out to Aaron, make us gods that can lead us. And Aaron says, break off the golden rings that are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received them from their hand and made a molten calf, fashioned with a chiseling tool. Then he said, this is your God Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Then Aaron made a pro- proclamation saying, tomorrow we will be fat feet. We will, tomorrow will be a feast to Adonai. They arose early, uh, up early the next morning, sacrificed burnt offerings and brought fellowship offerings. The people that sat down to eat and drink and rose up to make merry. Aaron, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, the one who the Lord has already put the anointing on. Now, he hasn't been consecrated yet, but the anointing has already been put upon him to be the high priest of Israel, the one serving before the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle and ultimately the temple when the temple is built through his descendancy of the priesthood. Uh, this man cries out to Israel when they beckon him to build them a God. He says, all right, well, give me all your stuff and we'll make one. And it specifically says he had to chisel the golden calf out of the gold. Right? He took the gold, he molten it, he melted it down, and then he chiseled it into a god. Right? This wasn't an inactive role on his part. This wasn't him standing by watching somebody else do this. This was Aaron himself doing this. And we read just before this, at the end of chapter 31, about the Lord reiterating the covenant of the Shabbat with, it, with Moses, uh, with Israel to Moses, and in particular, verse 18 of, the, of chapter 31 says, when he had finished speaking, the speaking of the Lord, when he had finished speaking with him, with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave the two tablets of the testimony to Moses, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Notice the Lord, all-knowing, right? He knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin. He knew that you and I were going to sin. He knew what Israel was going to do at Mount Sinai with the golden calf. Yet before Israel ever made the golden calf, the Lord still followed through on giving the covenant with Israel. I want that to sink in for a minute. Right? The Lord still followed through. He knew what Israel was about to do. As a matter of fact, it's likely Israel was already getting raucous when the Lord gave Moses the tablets of the covenant. The Lord etched these tablets with his own hand. Tradition says it was made out of uh, uh, the same uh, stones that the vision of heaven were, uh, describes and that it was carved straight through, all the way through both sides with the finger of God in such a fashion that even the, the, the letters like the... Uh, the, the um, my mind just went blank on me. Holy jeez. The, the, the baits with the, the dot in the center and all these kinds of things that these were cut straight through and just miraculously floating on the tablet. Uh, and so I know it's just tradition, but it's really interesting when we look at the way that the Jewish perspective is of this. And they say the reason why God carved it in the same stones that are seen in the vision of heaven is because God wanted us to be reminded of the reality of the better promises that were awaiting us and what God was doing. And so that first tablet that was cut by the hand of God, that was etched by the hand of God, that was meant to be a memorial of the covenant that God is making with Israel was also a reminder of heaven that is awaiting us in the eternity that is coming. And 
And so God hands Moses this, and the very next thing we read is about Israel begging, begging Aaron to build them a golden calf because they're worried that Moses has been gone too long and they don't know what they're going to do next. So in verse 7 of chapter 32, it continues on, Then Adonai said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have become debased. They quickly turned aside from the path that I commanded for them. They have made a molten calf, worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Imagine being Adonai, hearing Israel proclaim these words. Imagine being Adonai, hearing Aaron proclaim these words. Israel, listen, this golden calf is your God that brought you up out of the land of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. Adonai said to Moses, verse 9, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. How many times has the Lord spoken those words about us? Now therefore leave me alone, so my wrath may burn hot against them, and so I may consume them and make from you a great nation. Then Moses sought Adonai, his God, and said, Adonai, why should your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out to, the, to do evil, to slay them in the mountains, and to annihilate them from the face of the earth? And Moses and the Lord go back and forth on this, and, and I, I, I want this to sink in for a moment. Moses has no clue what Israel has done yet. The Lord simply hinted at the fact that they have debased themselves. Moses has no clue really what's going on yet. He hasn't seen the drama portray and play out. Moses is on his face interceding on behalf of Israel anyways. He doesn't know how bad Israel's gotten, but he is still interceding on their behalf. And he's crying out to the Lord, don't wipe them out. What will the nations think? You've taken them out of Egypt. You brought them here. You said you were taking them to your promised land. What will the nations think of you, Lord? Israel's purpose was to be a light to the nations. If the Lord wipes out the light to the nations, then how are the nations ever going to see the light of God to be led to him? What are the nations going to think? And so they continue back and forth in this discussion. Finally, Moses is coming down the mountain. Verse 19, Then it happened, as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and his anger burned hot. So he threw the tablets out of his hand and smashed them at the foot of the mountain. Listen, Israel had turned back to the idolatry they witnessed in Egypt. All right? I'm not really fervent in faith that the Israel, the first generation of Israel that came out of Egypt, had ever actually fully turned away from idolatry at all. And what we see is anytime we get caught in the, the nitty-gritty, the toughness of life, our instant reaction is to revert back to what we were before things got rough. And so this is what Israel does. They're out there, they're wondering where Moses is at. Moses is up on the mountain too long, and they revert back to what they knew in Egypt. They revert back to what was going on. And, and you've got to understand in pagan culture, pagan worship, when they talk about there being uh, dancing and, and partying and all of this, it wasn't a good thing. There's kids in the room. I won't quite use the language that was really happening. But it wasn't a good thing. They were doing everything that the pagan world around them did in worshiping their gods. But they were proclaiming that this golden calf, this idol, this fake god, was the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that brought them out of bondage in Egypt. Verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 20, then he took the calf that, he had, that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the surface of the water, and made B'nai Israel drink it, made the children of Israel drink it. 21, then Moses said to Aaron, now Moses' attention turns. You know, Israel's a bunch of messed up idiots. God knows they were going to do this eventually. Aaron, what the heck is wrong with you? 
Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you to make you bring such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, don't be angry, my Lord. You know these people yourself and how they are set on evil. They said to, make me, uh, to, to me, make gods for us to go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and poof, out came this calf. Let's go back a few verses. We go back a few verses, and it says, verse 4, He received from their hand and made a molten calf fashioned with a chiseling tool. Whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Magically, poof, here's this golden calf. I want you to understand, the covenant was already cut before Israel failed again. The covenant was already made before Israel turned their back on the Lord. When Moses came down the mountain and shattered the tablets, he didn't shatter the covenant. As a matter of fact, that covenant was renewed again when he returns to Mount Sinai for another 40 days and brings the, the tablets with him. He carves them himself. He carries them up, and the Lord carves and etches the words upon them. The covenant is renewed again. The first covenant, tradition says, was etched in heavenly stone, and the second covenant was etched in earthly stone as a foreshadowing of the heavenly that would be to come. And as we look at all this, we realize that the nation of Israel, much like you and I, are just really messed up people. And when things get complicated, we get worried. And when we get worried, we turn our back on what the Lord wants to do through us, for us, and through us for the world around us. And we get hung up on the here and the now, and what are we going to do in this situation? And we even see somebody as influential and important as Aaron, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of Israel, capable of being susceptible to temptation, sin, and ultimately fall. Moses comes down, he shatters the covenant, he shatters the stones of the covenant, the tablets of the covenant. He awakens Israel's attention to what is going on. And before he ever came down and saw what happened, he was interceding on behalf of Israel. And immediately afterwards, he goes back to intercede on behalf of Israel. And the Lord says, listen, I'm just going to leave him here. Lord, uh, Moses says, no, no, you got to take him. You said you were going to do this. you got to take him. Well, I'll send my angel ahead of them. No, no, Lord, you can't just send your angel. You've got to go before them. If you aren't going before them, I'm not going. You yourself have to go with Israel. And they have this conversation back and forth, back and forth. And Moses finally cries out, Lord, show me your glory. Show me the fullness of who you are. And we've got to remember, Moses really wasn't such a great guy most of the time either. Moses messed things up quite a bit on his own. Uh, so we, we can't like suddenly think he was better than Aaron or Israel. He messed things up quite a bit on his own. But the thing we notice towards the end of the Parsha is the Lord does in fact reveal his glory to Moses. Now Moses has already seen his glory. He's already resided in his glory. He's been in his glory for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. But the Lord reveals his glory to him again. As he hides him in the cleft of the rock, Moses says, let me see your face. The Lord says, no man see my face. He says, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand upon you, which we were talking this morning before service. And I hypothesize that uh, we look in the Brachadashah, the New Covenant writings, the New Testament, and it says that Yeshua ascended to be the right hand of the Father, right? Or ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. And that doesn't mean he's sitting on some micro throne to the right of God, but instead in the Hebrew context throughout the Tanakh or the Old Testament, the right hand of God is the might, the power, 
power and the authority of God. Yeshua ascended to be the right hand of God, to be the might, the power, and the authority of God. So when Yeshua says anything we ask in his name will be given unto us, it's because we're asking in his authority. And so when uh, the Lord hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, I believe that this was the right hand, this was the might, the power, the authority of the Lord protecting him in the cleft of the rock. Jewish tradition speaks of that cleft, uh, that rock being the rock of Messiah. Uh, and we know scripturally over and over again the image there of Messiah being our rock. Uh, I believe he hid them, hid them in the cleft of the rock. He covered them with his right hand, his might, his power, his authority. The, the visible image of the invisible God, as Colossians 1.15 says, he covered him and protected him with his hand with Messiah Yeshua. And then he walked past and he allowed him to see his backside as he passed. Now we know, we completely recognize that when God says, no man's seen my face, that he doesn't mean it in the same way we often take it because Abraham sat and ate dinner with him. And we know that when the elders went up on the mountain with Moses, they sat and ate dinner with God. And they saw his presence, they saw his glory, they saw the heavenlies, and they were dumbfounded at the fact that they could see it and live. No man has seen the Father, but we've seen the visible image of the invisible God, as Colossians 1.15 speaks of. Moses saw pre-incarnate Yeshua. Moses saw Yeshua before he was born of a woman. And this is important for us to grasp because the reality is Moses stood before God most high and interceded on behalf of Israel and cried out to the Lord, do not let Israel die out on their own. Do not let them fade away because the nations need you more than ever. And these are the people you have called out to lead the nations unto you. And if you leave them now and you don't go with them, I'm not going with them. I'm not willing to journey unless you journey. I'm not willing to go unless we follow you. And the Lord allows Israel to continue on and says, okay, I will do what you ask and I will go with you. I will travel with you. I will join you in this, in this, uh, this journey to the promises of God. We know ultimately Israel ends up sinning again and rejecting the land and God uh, gets rid of the first generation, the second generation gets to go in, but the presence of the Lord legitimately and literally leads the nation of Israel into the promised land. We read through the book of Joshua and we see battle after battle after battle that the Lord himself fought for Israel and prepared the way so that all Israel had to do was walk in and clean up the mess over and over and over again. And we recognize that God was true to his word and true to his covenant. That covenant was renewed over and over and over again with Israel. And I want you to understand, when Israel stood at Mount Sinai and they had Moses, or Abraham, build, uh, Abraham, Aaron build this golden calf for them and they fell to the temptation of sin and idolatry as they did, you know who's responsible for this? The enemy. Just as he separated, attempted to separate Adam and Eve from the presence of God, he was trying to attempt to separate Israel from the promises of God. Ultimately, he was trying to eliminate the lineage that would bring about Messiah Yeshua, the one who would crush his head. This was his plan from the very beginning. And we know fervently, I have no doubt in my mind, that division and disunity is not of God. Division and disunity is of the enemy. And when we are divided, it is not because God wants us to be divided, it's because we are allowing the enemy to have his way in our communities. I was speaking at a church yesterday and I told him, uh, as I've said here before, that the reason we have thousands of denominations is because we've allowed the enemy to divide us. And the more the enemy divides us, the less we are strong in the power of the Lord. The less of a threat we are to him. Shavuot, the Pentecost this year, we're going to undo that. We're going to come together in unity. Getting rid of the enemy in our way, we're going to come together in unity as the body of Messiah. Messianic synagogue and churches alike throughout the, the county are going to come together to celebrate Shavuot in unity. And we're going to watch as the enemy quakes. 
In Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 14, Yeshua was casting out a demon. It says, now Yeshua was driving out a demon and it was mute. When the demon had, co- had gone out, the mute one spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some among them said, By Beelzebul, by uh, the ruler of demons, he drives out demons. Others testing him were demanding from him a sign from heaven. But Yeshua, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed, and a house against a house falls. Now if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, By Beelzebul, I drive out the demons. But if by Beelzebul I drive out demons, by whom? Do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if by the finger of God I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The enemy contorted Israel's vision of what the Lord was doing in the wilderness. Yeshua came to fix that. And he says, I'm going to drive the demons out from among you. You and I, in the power of the blood of the Lamb, by the name of Yeshua Mashiach, in the anointing and authority of the Ruach HaKodesh, have the ability, just as Yeshua, to drive out demons, to see strongholds broken, to see freedom given, to see freedom and Messiah reign on high among the nations. And this is not the, the kingdom of God divided upon itself. This is not the kingdom of the enemy divided upon itself. This is the kingdom of God against the kingdom of the enemy. And you and I are a part of that. And the closer we get to walking in full alignment with the will of God, as Israel was the first, rep- first realization of the presence of God at Mount Sinai, when they cried out, everything you, do, we will, uh, everything you say we will do, the closer we are to walking in alignment with the will of God, as Israel was at that very moment, the harder the enemy is going to work against us. And the more that his demonic forces are going to come in and try and separate us and divide us and segregate us and put us, pit us against each other and against other denominations and other congregations and other people out there to try and eliminate the power and the authority of God that is in our lives and that is very much a part of who we are. But the beauty and the reality of it all is that we serve a God who was for, uh, well aware beforehand of exactly what the enemy was going to do and of exactly the type of temptation we might fall prey to and he cut a covenant with us before it ever happened. And that covenant was a covenant of eternal salvation that would come through the person of Messiah Yeshua offering his life as our sacrifice lamb, as our final atonement, as our Passover sacrifice, that we could be restored to eternal life. And just as the first covenant traditionally is viewed as being carved in heavenly stone, the renewal of that covenant was then carved in earthly stone as a foreshadowing of, and now the covenant has been renewed again in the heavenlies as it was originally on Mount Sinai. And in the same sense that nothing the enemy could do to Israel in the wilderness could ever undo what the Lord wanted to do through them, nothing the enemy does in your or my life could ever be undone by what the enemy is trying to do. We must walk fervently in spite of what Israel did. We must learn from our forefathers' mistakes. Whether you are Jewish or not, we must learn from our forefathers' mistakes to recognize that we cannot continue to walk out a life of faith mixed with the life of the enemy's control. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1 says, Are we beginning to command ourselves again, uh, to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. It is clear that you are a letter from Messiah delivered by us, written not with ink, 
but with the Ruach of the Lord, of the living God, the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And this is uh, uh, alluding back to Jeremiah 31, where the promise of the new covenant is that the word, the covenant, the Torah would be etched upon our heart itself, not just on stone, but now upon our very heart. Verse 4, such is the confidence we have through Messiah toward God, not that we are co- competent in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our competence is from God. He also made us competent as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Ruach, for the letter kills, but the Ruach gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that B'nai Israel could not look intently upon Moses' face because of his, its glory, although it was, a pa- it was passing away, how will the ministry of the Ruach not be even more glorious? Moses was on the mountain in the end of this parish, he comes back down and his face is radiant with the glory of God and the nation of Israel is shaking in their sandals at the presence of God upon his face. What they saw on the mountain for the last several weeks, they're now seeing on their shepherd's face. And Moses would wrap his face and he would hide it. He would veil his face. And the only time he would open it up is if he was going back into the tent of meetings and in the presence of the Lord, or if he was revealing the word of the Lord to the nation of Israel. And he'd immediately wrap his face again so that Israel would not be afraid. Now, the ministry, uh, I'm sorry, skipping down to verse 12. uh, Therefore, having such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face in order for B'nai Israel not to look intently upon the end of what was passing away, but their minds were hardened. For up to this very day, the same veil remains unlifted at the reading of the ancient covenant, at the reading of the Torah, since in Messiah it is passing away. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, talking about the Jewish people. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Ruach Adonai is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord who is the Spirit. Unlike Moses, who had to continually wrap his face to protect Israel, we have been anointed with the same glory, the same power, the same Shekhinah of the Lord. We no longer have to unveil our our faces. We are to walk in the boldness of the power and the presence of the Shekhinah, the divine glory of the Lord, and the world around us, so that the world around us will see the power and the presence of the Lord. And, and it's really interesting, because you remember how I told you that the covenant with Israel was actually made, was cut with Israel, uh, or, or cut for Moses, before they actually sinned, before they fell prey to uh, the, the reality of the temptation of the enemy and the, the golden calf scenario. We go back to verse 11 of chapter 30, the very beginning of this Parsha, and it's really interesting the language that's used here. We go back to verse 11, the beginning of the Parsha, chapter 30 of the book of Exodus says, Then Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, When you tally the sum of B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, by numbering them, then every man must pay a ransom for his soul to Adonai when you count them so that no plague will fall on them. Everyone among them who crosses over, and the word there is ha'over, uh, uh, ha'over, which is from the, the root word ever means to cross over. It's the root for evrim, uh, for the, the Hebrew people, for the Jewish people. This is what God calls us, the ones who cross over. So he says, everyone who crosses over among them who is counted from 20 years old and upward is to, go, uh, is to give the offering to Adonai. The rich are not to give more and the poor are not to give less than a half shekel. When the, they present the offering of Adonai 
to make atonement for their souls. You are to take the atonement money from Bnei Israel and give it to the service of the tent of meeting so that it may be a memorial for Bnei Israel before Adonai to make atonement for your souls. Notice this shekel that's being paid, this half shekel is meant as a form of atonement for the nation of Israel. And for each and every one of them counted, it must be given. It's the same price whether you're rich or poor. It's the same price no matter what socioeconomical background you are. It's the same price no matter what uh, 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 country you're from, no matter what people group you're from. It's the same price no matter how big your family is or how small your family is. The price for atonement and salvation is the same. And it's interesting that this money that was given, this, this atonement money that was given for uh, the redemption of Israel, if you would, for the atonement of Israel, was to be taken into the tent of meeting, into the sanctuary itself, the presence of God, because this, in fact, is exactly where Yeshua's blood was poured out, was in the Holy of Holies, in the tent of meeting in the heavenlies, the one that the one on earth was merely modeled after. And in the same sense that everyone gave a half shekel, no matter their actual financial value, in the same sense, salvation was bought for the same price for all, no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're free or you're a slave. The price was the same, and it was given freely for you to find the reality of the atonement of Messiah Yeshua's blood for salvation so that we could, in fact, be brought into the covenant of the glory of God upon our faces, so that we could be, in fact, brought into the covenant written upon our heart no longer simply on stone or on paper, but on our heart and our flesh itself, lived out in a means and a manner that impacts the world around us where we are actually now walking as a light among the nations. And as the Gentiles come into the body of Messiah, as Paul talks about in Romans, they were brought in to drive the Jew to jealousy for his God. So when the nations begin to walk in the same presence of the Shekhinah, the glory of God as Moses did, and the same Shekhinah as Yeshua, it opens up the heart of the Jewish people for their Messiah. And the veil that Corinthians, 2 Corinthians was talking about over the, the covenant begins to fall. And as salvation is opened up to the Jewish people, that veil falls and the revelation of the glory of God in our midst is fulfilled and revealed. And for us as believers, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. That revelation is a reality in our lives. And here's the thing. The same people that built the golden calf, the same people generation by generation by generation are the very people that God used over and over again to bring about Mashiach to bring about the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh upon Jew and Gentile, to bring about the beginnings of the body of Messiah. God knew what Israel was going to do before they ever did it, and he still cut covenant with them and honored the covenant with them and walked before them and prepared a path for them and used them in spite, in spite of what they allowed the enemy to use them for. And I want you to think about your own lives. As the reality is, God wants to use you and I in spite of who we were at the base of Mount Sinai, putting a golden calf up in the way of our relationship with the Lord. The Lord wants to use an I, you and I and restore us to his Shekhinah, to his glory, to his presence, so that the nations around us don't look at us and go, well, what, what exactly did God do for you? He said he was going to bring you out of slavery, but you're still as bound as ever before. You're still as down and dirty as ever before. Where is the cleanliness you talk about and the righteousness you talk about? The Lord must have brought you out of Egypt to let you die in the wilderness because you weren't even good enough to die in slavery. And the enemy tells us this day in and day out. 
How could the Lord love you? Don't you remember when you were stuck at the computer looking at pornography all day? Don't you remember when your face was buried in the toilet day in and day out because you were drunk nonstop? Don't you remember when all you were doing was wrecking your friends' lives and your family's lives? Don't you remember when you robbed this or you broke that or you killed this and the enemy is constantly wanting to yank us down? And the Lord is standing there constantly saying, but the covenant's already been made. The price has already been paid. I've already bought you and restored you. All you have to do is walk in it. And I want to use you to be a light to the nations. And I want to use you to reveal my glory to the world around you. And I want to use you to bring my kingdom into fulfillment and reality here on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to use you to be my mishkan, my tabernacle, my temporal dwelling place for my presence. I want to use you to be a light to the nations, to lead those lost in darkness and despair into the truth of the salvation and the glory of God. I don't care what calf we've built up in front of us. I don't care how bad we've demolished what the Lord's building in our lives. The reality is the Lord is ready to repair it. He's ready to restore it. He's ready to renew you and to uplift you and to build you. That healing that is found in his wings is a spiritual reality as much as it is a physical reality. The Shekhinah, the divine glory that Moses would veil upon his face is upon you and I as followers of Messiah Yeshua. And it is necessary that we do not veil that presence anymore. That we do not hide it. We don't back down in the midst of the things going on in the world around us. This world is going down the crapper fast. Right. And it's our job to make sure we save as many people as possible for the glory of the kingdom of God. It's our job to make sure that the name of Messiah is proclaimed before as many people as possible. The only way that's going to work is when we, the body of Messiah, come together in unity and the power of God. So as I've said before, the end of Acts 1 and the end of Acts 2, the disciples were doing the same exact thing. They were eating, praying, teaching, and studying, worshiping together. Same end of Acts 1, same end of Acts 2. The end of Acts 1, they promoted one of their own. The end of Acts 2, thousands were being added. They were being saved. The difference was the presence of God in their midst, the power of God in their midst. It was because they were unified in the power of God that thousands were saved in a day and there were those being added day in and day out coming to know the glory of God. And God wants to use you and I in the same exact way. And he's calling us to accept the payment for our redemption that has already been paid, to walk in fullness of the glory of God that has already been bestowed upon us, and to recognize that the covenant of salvation was cut for us before we ever recognized we sinned. And that nothing the enemy could do will ever demolish what the Lord wants to do through us. The only way the enemy gains ground in our lives is when we give it to him. And it's time we take that ground back as the body of Messiah, as individual believers in the blood of the Lamb, and we walk in the anointing, the power, and the authority of the right hand of God, Yeshua Mashiach, and the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, I thank you that you are a God who cherishes us no matter what that you are a God who is constantly uh, wooing us and drawing us back, that you are a God that is constantly calling us to our first love. And Father, I thank you that you are bringing correction, that you are bringing restoration in our lives and through our lives and the lives of those we interact with. Father, I pray that you give each and every one of us divine appointments that the veil would be removed and the Shekhinah, the divine glory of the Lord, will be revealed to each and every person we interact with and that they will feel the power and presence of the Lord in their midst, and their lives will be changed, touched, restored, renewed, and returned to you for eternity. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen, Amen and Amen.